It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't. But this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode seven of 20. I truly believe that I was on Delta Flight 15 on that particular day that I was right exactly where I was supposed to be. You know, I never questioned it. One part of the 9-11 story that few know about is that there were a bunch of other planes that were mid-flight when the terrorist attack started. And what was to be done about them? Were there terrorists among their passengers preparing to make weapons out of them too? Well, Shirley Brooks Jones was on one of those planes and was one of those passengers just trying to get home that day. And you won't believe where fate would lead her and how it's enriched her life in ways that she could have never imagined, especially in such a dark time. More from this spunky, energetic, and glowing 85-year-old. But first, a message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's get back to Shirley with her story. I had been in Denmark, France and Denmark, um, actually, and had attended a board meeting in Denmark of People to People International, which was an organization that was started by President Eisenhower back in 1956. And his whole thought in establishing that organization was that if we could, because he'd spent his whole career in the military, he had seen some horrible, horrible things. As he was recuperating from one of his serious heart attacks, he came up with this idea that if we could, if we could simply get to know people, just as people, not let religion or politics get in the middle of our getting to know one another, that we would have a better chance of finding peace in our world. Well, I liked that. So I had been involved with People to People since 1978. And it was an awesome, awesome experience. Well, years later, this board meeting was scheduled in Aalborg, Denmark. So I was going to be traveling to those meetings with a friend of mine from Florida. She called me one day when we were getting ready to make our flight reservations and all that sort of thing. And she asked me if, when we finished the board meetings, if I would mind if we just stopped in Frankfurt, Germany on our way home. She had a granddaughter, her oldest granddaughter, who had recently taken a two-year contract to teach English as a second language to German bank executives. 
So that's what we did. Actually, the meetings in Denmark finished on the 10th. And had my friend not asked me to stop in Frankfurt, Germany, I would have been home on September the 10th. And I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you two men. I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But we um, got up the next morning, got on the plane, headed to Atlanta, where my friend Joe was going to head on to West Palm Beach, Florida, and I was coming into Columbus. Well, we got about four and a half or five hours outside of Frankfurt, Germany, and the captain came on the PA system. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have a slight emergency. Something about an indicator signal or light or something like that. He said, we're gonna have to put down a gander Newfoundland and take a look at it. Newfoundland is a Canadian island in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> the only thing I knew about Newfoundland was that it, in 1912, when the Titanic went down, it was off of the coast of Newfoundland. <laughs> and then he said, so just sit back. He said, we'll be in Gander pretty soon. However, we're too heavy to land at Gander, so we're going to have to dump 30,000 pounds of fuel so that it'll be safe for us to land. So I was never good at math. I really did not like math at all. I had a teacher make fun of me when I was learning short division or whatever it was. So I never really was comfortable with math. I'm trying to figure out how many gallons 30,000 pounds would be. And I just figured, well, it has to be a whole bunch. So I settled back in. Well, once we came in for the landing, I happened to be sitting next to a window, and I could look down at the airport in Gander. Well, we circled and circled, of course, and dumped all of the fuel, and I was worried about the trees and the water and all that sort of stuff with the fuel, you know, going out. So we came in for a landing, and I could look out the window, and something seemed kind of strange to me because the planes weren't parked like they ordinarily would be at an airport. You know, for example, the planes from, you know, one airline would all be parked together and the other airline, you know, uh, something was strange. And then the, as we came in to taxi, there was a U.S. military cargo plane sitting at the head of one long line of airplanes. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange. It's almost like that plane is trying to keep the other planes from taking off. It was really, the, the thoughts that went through my mind was really strange. Well, we finally came to the area where we parked. The captain came back on the intercom. Um, and I have to say this, Captain Michael Sweeney was one of my heroes during that period of time because his calmness and his respect for all of the passengers was just incredible. He was just absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But anyway, he came back on the PA system. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. I have to apologize for the ruse. Actually, the equipment is fine, but he said, there's a national emergency in the United States. All the borders are closed and the military is now under control of the airspace. And Gander became the spot where a ton of mid-flight planes had to land at this small two-runway airport. And there were some, uh, some of the flights that they didn't want to land in Gander. They wanted to go on, you know, someplace else. And they were told emphatically, you will land at the closest airport to where you are or you'll be shot out of the air. Now, we didn't know that. If we'd known that, I mean, I think I would have kind of gotten scared.
It was amazing. I mean, my mind, when he told, he, he, he told us that a plane had gone into one of the Twin Towers in New York City, and I was, my mind went back to, I think it was 1945, I was a kid, and there was a military plane that had gone into the Empire State Building and killed the pilot and everything else. So that's why, and I'm thinking, but why would the, why would the borders be closed? You know, if a plane just went into the tower. Anyway, but that time then he said, uh, and the Pentagon has been hit and something has happened outside of Pittsburgh. Well, you know, I've never been in a place where it was so silent. Nobody in our plane, we had 218 passengers, nobody, I mean, nobody got hysterical. I mean, we were all very, very, very quiet. Now, what Captain Sweeney told us as we were sitting there, we sat aboard Delta Flight 15 for 28 and a half hours. They were trying to figure out, uh, you know, I mean, Newfoundland is very sparsely populated. And they were trying to figure out what to do with all of us. Where were they going to put us? Because they had no idea how long we were going to be there. They didn't know when the borders to the United States would be open again. So once he was told to land at Gander, he no longer had any contact, you know, with the air traffic controllers. But what he did was he monitored the BBC the whole time we sat aboard that plane. And for hour after hour after hour, he relayed to us whatever information he could find out. Now, in those days, not many people had cell phones. But the ones who did have, they would loan their phones to other passengers just to let people know that we were okay. But as I said, we sat aboard the plane for 28 and a half hours, watched what was going on outside on the tarmac at Gander International Airport. We could see all these other planes coming in. We could see pickup trucks coming and going. I could see the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I always like to tell when I was a kid, I listened to Sergeant Preston of the Yukon on the radio. And I was madly in love with Sergeant Preston and his trusty horse and all that sort of stuff. But we finally, you know, were able to get off the plane. And well, as we looked out the windows, you could see this long line of yellow school buses coming across the tarmac. Turned out that the school bus drivers in central Newfoundland had been on strike. When they found out what had happened, they all came off of the picket lines, got their buses in all these little teeny tiny towns, drove into the airport in Gander and waited because they knew they would be needed. They knew they would be needed. Now, during the period of time that we sat aboard the plane, the mayors and the ministers of the churches and the Salvation Army, they gathered together to figure out what they were going to do. They called us the plane people. What were they going to do? Now, there were 38 jumbo jets from all around, uh, all over, and there were almost 7,000 passengers. Gander had fewer than 10,000 population. They certainly didn't have room enough to take care of, you know, 10,000 passengers. So they were trying to figure out, each of these little towns were trying to figure out how many of the plain people they could take care of. So there's a little town about halfway between Gander and Lewisport called Appleton. Appleton had, I think, about 250 population. They took care of 150 people in that little tiny town. So each of these little tiny towns took care of as many people as they possibly could. 
Finally, they got that all figured out, and after, as I said, after 28 and a half hours, we were allowed off of the plane. And as we walked down the steps, we had no idea, you know, what was going to happen next. We didn't know how long we would be there. We, well, we had no idea what. Nobody was saying a word. I mean, we were just doing what they were asking us to do. We were very, very quiet about it. We got inside of the airport. Of course, we had to go through customs and all the other sort of thing. Now, during the hours that we sat aboard that plane, we didn't have anything to eat. Nobody was really hungry, of course, uh, but uh, we had a few little snacks at one point, but that's, that's all we had to eat, but nobody was hungry. So once we got inside of the airport, they had more food than I have ever seen in my life. Every flat surface in that airport in Gander was full of all kinds of food. They had fried chicken, they had salads, they had desserts, they had, I mean, everything was just full of food and drink and, and desserts and so forth. So there were four of these planes that had been assigned to go to the Lewisport area, okay, to the little community and the 14 outport towns that surround Lewisport. There were about a thousand of, of us in those four planes. So finally we got the word that our plane was going to be loaded onto one of the buses. We get on the bus and we were not allowed to take our luggage. We just had the clothes on our back and if we had a little flight bag or something we could take that along with us as well. You know, our luggage had to remain on the plane because they really weren't sure what people were aboard those planes. I mean, you know, we could have had some terrorists aboard some of those planes. So that's why the luggage stayed, you know, on board. But we get in the bus and the school bus driver stands up, nice looking young fellow with an Irish brogue. I mean, the, the people in Newfoundland really came originally from primarily Ireland. And they're just, their accents, I love their accents. They speak English, but it's a different, different accent from what we speak here. Anyway, the bus driver stands up in front of the bus after we had got all seated and he put his hands on his hips and he said, me name's Moody, but that don't mean that's what I is. Well, you know, if anybody was tense after they heard him say that, <laughs> the tension was a little bit lighter. But I, I never was afraid. I always knew that we were going to be okay. I just had a sense of, of, of well-being. It was, it was really strange. I mean, I was never afraid. So he sits down. He starts driving into Lewisport. I was absolutely amazed. There were American flags flying from their businesses and from their homes and every place. I mean, it again brought, just brought me to tears. And I thought, how in the world, where did they get all of these American flags? Well, I'll tell you, they really appreciate the United States. So we get to the location, each of us had been assigned to a specific, not just a specific town, but a specific location within the town. And I tell a lot of people too, just the logistics of what those people did for us, how they figured out where each one of us was gonna go and everything else, it still makes my head hurt, just thinking the logistics involved and, and everything that those people did. So. We get to the stop where we were going to be housed and I look up at the building where I had been assigned 
and the tears started going down my cheeks. Now I always, I always kept my emotions in inside of me. I never let any tears out or anything else because I'm the oldest of nine kids and I never wanted my little brothers and sisters to get upset if they saw me crying and everything. So years and years, I, I never allowed myself to cry. Well, the tears started coming down my cheeks and my friend looked at me and she says, what's wrong? Well, the thing that bothered me was, or the thing that got to me really, really, really emotionally. When I was a kid going to school, I was so nearsighted, I had to hold things clear up to the end of my nose in order to see what I was looking at. And the school nurse sent a note home to my parents, surely definitely needs her eyes checked because she needs glasses. Well, there wasn't any money for that. So the school nurse got in touch with the lions, the local lions, and it was those anonymous men all of those years ago that paid for my first eye examination and my first pair of glasses. And I've told a lot of people, without those lions all those years ago, my life would not have been what it has been able to become. Okay, now we're back in Lewisport and the tears are coming down my cheeks. And my friend said, what's wrong? And I looked at her and I said, the lions are still taking care of me went inside of the building. It was the Lewisport Lions Center. We went inside the building and those people had set up the tables, white tablecloths. Um, you could smell food. They were cooking food in the kitchen, flowers on the table. It was the most incredible thing. The first thing we saw, of course, was a tiny, tiny little television, uh, little television set up at the front of the building. And we just went rushing up to that television because we'd, we'd not seen any pictures. We'd not seen any pictures. The only pictures that we had were in our head from what Captain Michael Sweeney had told us, you know, while we were sitting on the plane. There we were more than 30 hours after the things had happened in New York and Washington and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. 30 hours later, we were seeing those pictures and we stood there for hour after hour after hour, just staring at that television set. You know, um, we had, aboard our plane, we had, uh, there were 218 passengers. We had people who couldn't speak English. And the mayor found people who could translate and so forth. Uh, we had people who couldn't eat meat and, and things like that. So the folks there in Newfoundland, they found out all of this stuff and they adapted to what the needs of the passengers were, the plain people. So this went on for days. I mean, just, they, they brought in their own towels and washcloths, their sheets, their pillows, their blankets from their own homes. They had boxes of, of shampoo and razors and shaving cream and diapers for the kids because we had a lot of little kids on our plane as well. Diapers and toys and you name it. They had cleared their own homes of anything and everything that they thought the plain people might need. And a lot of the other folks too, they would go to stores. They needed this or that or the other. Nobody would charge them for anything. They said, no, just take whatever you need. Just take whatever you need. It's the most incredible experience. At night, there at the Lions Center, the, the women would come in and they would pick up the used towels and washcloths and so forth. They'd take them home. They'd wash them. They'd dry them. They'd bring them back so that we always had clean towels and washcloths. 
It was the most incredible experience I have ever, ever had. And the kindness of these people, they just, they, and they came, they came in from a lot of the little villages that were around to help at the Lion Center and at the churches, because we were housed in the churches and the schools and the service clubs all over. Just absolutely amazing. One of the things too, they, <laughs> when we were there, they never locked their doors. You know, they never, I mean, the keys were always in their truck or their car or whatever. You know, if you want to borrow a car or a truck or whatever, just go over and borrow it. You know, you know, they're going to bring, you're going to bring it back. You know, now some things I think have changed a little bit, but yeah, I mean, they're just so kind to one another. I mean, if you, if you need something, you know, there's always somebody there who's going to help you. Everybody just looked out for us. They'd come in and they'd say, you know, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the boat out. Anybody want to go? Or they're going to take a walk. And the, they essentially closed down the town. Well, Bill Hooper, Bill Hooper was the mayor of Lewisport. And when we first pulled into Lewisport in our yellow school bus, there were all of these signs, the political signs, apparently they were, they were having a political campaign going. And there were all these signs, Hooper for mayor, Hooper for mayor. And then there were other signs as well. My friend looked over and she says, I wonder who this Hooper fella is. Well, little did we know that he was going to be, he and his wife Thelma were going to become dear, dear, dear friends. Bill Bill is just the salt of the earth, and Thelma is just, oh my gosh, I love those people. I said, I had four brothers and I had four sisters. And actually, Bill and Thelma Hooper are and I are closer than I am with some of my own siblings. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. But Bill, little uh, sandy-haired fella, had a little cow look, cow lick with his notebook, and he was running around not only in Lewisport, but to all these other 14 little, little villages that he was responsible for checking and making sure that everybody was okay. Did they need anything? Now, one of the passengers aboard our plane was a woman who lived in Palm Beach, Florida. And she was frantic because her daughter and son-in-law and their family lived in New York City. The son-in-law was a professional photographer. His name was Bill Biggert. And she was frantic because she couldn't get in touch with, with her family at all. And it turned out that Bill Biggert was working on a job in New York City. And when he saw what was happening, he, you know, kept right on filming. He kept right on filming. And sometime later, they, they, did, find, they did find his body, and they developed the film that he had shot. The 35 millimeter, the pictures were, were still good, but there was some smoke damage at the bottom. The digital film was just absolutely incredible. But... She, you know, was not able to get through to any of her family or anything. So when she arrived in Lewisport, she talked with Mayor Bill Hooper and told him that she was desperate to get some news about her family. So he kept checking and checking and checking. And finally, he found out that indeed her son-in-law had been killed. And so he went to the church, talked with the pastor there, and let him know. So the pastor went and, and got Barbara and took her into his office and talked with her and comforted her as well as he could. Uh, some months later, I was visiting with my friend in Florida. And so we had dinner one evening with Barbara and we talked about it. And she said, Shirley, she said, I'm Jewish. 
She said, I never knew that anybody of a different faith could comfort me the way that that minister did. He brought her into his office and he, he, he was so kind to her and really was very, very helpful. Well, we talked, you know, about a lot of different things and I, I asked her, well, you know, you're uncomfortable talking about things like that, but the thing that was really amazing was that when they found Bill Bigger, they found his entire body, and so they were able to, you know, have the services and so forth, and she was so grateful for that. She was so grateful for that, but so many amazing stories. There was a, I looked over at the side door of the Lion Center, and in walks a little tiny boy, just, he was just a wee little guy, in one arm, he had a stuffed animal. In the other arm, he was dragging his little blanket. And those were his favorite things. And that little boy brought those things in for, for some of the little kids who were staying at the Lions Center. And how can, you, how can you not be affected by that? I mean, we had people in wheelchairs and walkers and everything else. It wasn't just the working age people. It was the the elderly, clear down to the wee little kids who were helping all of us plain people. There was a doctor, a retired doctor, who was assigned to a, another tiny little church there in Lewisport, and he was really not in good health. So they they were able to find a, a, a recliner that he could sleep in, and they, they stayed up all night long to watch him to make sure that he would be okay. And the next morning when he woke up, they went and they said, are you, are you okay? And he said, I'm fine. How could I be any better with, 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 with the cross of Jesus at my head and the flag of Newfoundland at my feet? And after the break, we'll hear how this gentleman repaid the people of Newfoundland. Let's return to what this grateful visitor did next. You know, that man, while he was there, he discovered that the people who were members of that little church had been working and working and working to try to have enough money that they could do some renovations to their church. Actually, the electrical system was in really bad, bad shape. Do you know what that man did? He, when he got back to where he was from, he made sure, he, well, he, he contacted some electricians and provided the funds so that they could not only fix whatever it was that they needed to have fixed, but they were able to do some really nice improvements to that church. So there were a lot of really good, good things that happened. Um, it was the most beautiful experience I, I have ever had and probably will ever, ever have again. Uh, you know, I've never, I've never experienced the kindness and the true, I mean, to me, it was, it was true love. It really was because these people really cared about what had happened to us. They were really worried about what had happened to the United States. And, you know, at one point I, I had said, I had said to somebody, you know, um, what do you think, I mean, what do you, what do you folks think about the United States? And the man looked at me and he said, I'll tell you this. He said, I know that if anything happened to us, that the United States would come to our aid. And you know what? That made me really feel good. It really, truly did. The English teacher at Lewisport Collegiate, which is what they call their high schools, uh, his name was Glenn Fudge. About a few weeks after 
we finally left in 2001, Glenn sat down and he wrote a song. Now the Newfoundlanders are extremely talented. They can play any kind of musical instrument, you know, come up with words, they can dance, they can sing, they can do all kinds of things. But Glenn came up with this song that he wrote called It's Just the Way We Are. And it starts out Tuesday, September 11, 2001, has Armageddon finally begun? And then he talks about, you know, we're sitting in front of their television in shock and disbelief and feeling really bad about the whole thing. And then all of these people show up in his small town. And then he talks about the things, he sings about the things that we did together, you know. And then the last verse is, no matter who you are, come on in, you've got a friend. That's just the way we are. But the la or that's the chorus, that's a chorus. No matter who you are from near or far, rich or poor, come on in. You've got a friend, that's just the way we are. The last verse is, twin towers come tumbling down, but no terrorist can ever get us down because right here in my small town, blah, 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 it's just the way we are. And they don't think they did anything out of the ordinary. They really, truly do not think they did anything out of the ordinary. But when I think about all of the hours that they spent, I mean, I saw, I saw women, you, did, you couldn't even tell they had ankles. Their legs were so swollen, their ankles and everything else from being on their feet and all the things they were doing. I mean, uh, and the men, I mean, everybody was helping from the old to the young. I mean, it was it just unbelievable. But anyway, I, I, I digressed here <laughs> many times, but when we finally got the word that we were going to leave, it was really, it was really strange because we wanted to get on our way. At the same time, we really didn't want to leave those wonderful people. And that's how Shirley felt after only being there for four days. Those people were, they, I've, I've had a lot of people say, well, how, how could you be, how could you get so close to those people when you were there for such a short period of time? I said, you just had to be there. You had to experience what we had experienced, you know, and there was a bonding between, uh, between all of us. I mean, I think every passenger who was there and experienced what we did at the hands of those Newfoundlanders feel the same way that I do. We wanted to be on our way, but we didn't want to leave either, you know. So on that Friday, it was the tail end of Hurricane Aaron, and it was coming down cats and dogs. Now the weather, all the other days that we had been there had been absolutely beautiful, beautiful, beautiful days. Just wonderful days. But there we were, they, and, the, and a couple of the, the, the pilots were worried that they might not be able to get out, you know, of Gander because of, of the hurricane. But we all, you know, we eventually all got out of there. Well, we just, before we got back on the plane, I'm sorry, I've, you know, wandered around here a little bit, but we all tried to leave some money with those people, wherever we stayed. We all tried to leave a little bit of money to help defray the expenses that they had had because we knew they couldn't afford to do what they had done for all those thousands and thousands of us. We knew they couldn't afford it, but they wouldn't take any money. They just said no, a simple thank you would, would be fine. Once we got back on the bus, we didn't say, on my bus at least, we didn't say a word to each other all the way from Lewisport back to the airport in Gander. 
once we got to the airport, we got checked in. And oh, the other thing is too, we had to use the same boarding pass when we left on the 14th of September, we had to use the same boarding pass that we had used when we got on the plane in Frankfurt. And we had to sit in the same seats and all the other kind of things. So it was really it was another little interesting thing. But once we got up into the air at cruising altitude, some of us got up and we were talking with one another because we'd all had different experiences because we were housed in different areas. And so we all had different experiences to share. So a couple of, a couple of the, my fellow passengers and I were standing in the middle of the aisle and we're saying, you know, we've got to do something. But how can we do something? They don't didn't want us to do anything. And one fellow said, well, you know, I learned a lot of the, the kids drop out of school. And I said, why? And he said, there are no jobs. Well, in my mind, I went back to the area where I grew up. In Appalachia. Same situation, no jobs. People would have to leave in order to find work. You know, so a lot of, a lot of my early life, you know, really came rushing back to me during these days that I was in Lewisport, Newfoundland. So anyway, this fellow said, I was thinking maybe we could help one or two kids. And all of a sudden, the light went off in my head and I said, what we need to do is see if we can't start an endowed scholarship fund. And one fellow says, what's an endowed scholarship fund? So I just explained very briefly, you spend the interest that the principal earns. You don't spend the principal at all. You just let the principal keep earning money and you use whatever you have as interest. And the other guy said, well, how can we do that? And I said, we'll make up pledge sheets. Another guy said, what's on a pledge sheet? <laughs> so I'm ripping sheets of paper out of my notebook and making up pledge sheets for this proposed scholarship fund. So anyway, that was good. So the guys, you know, started going around talking with the fellow passengers to see if they wanted to be a part of this. I knew they would want to be a part of it because of what we had all experienced at the hands of those those wonderful people in Lewisport and Norris Arm and, and Campbell and some of the other little tiny towns where we had stayed. So we're getting closer and closer to Atlanta. And of course, a lot of the people, as I said, couldn't speak English. So it was a little tough, you know, to explain what it was that we were trying to do. So I, I went to the fellow who really had triggered the idea in my head in the first place. And I said, I think we should ask the flight attendant if she'll make an announcement so that all of the passengers will know what we're trying to do. And he, he was hesitant. He says, no, they'll never do that. And I said, why? He said, because that's, that equipment is for official use only. And I said, I know that, but I still think we should ask. This is unusual. This isn't business as usual. And, but he wasn't about to do that. So <clears throat> I looked at one fella, you know, hoping that one of the, the guys standing around would volunteer to do it. And one fellow was looking down at the, the floor and looked at another fellow and he's dusting crumbs off of the front of his shirt. And I got the, got the sense real quick that, you know, none of those men were willing to go and, you know, speak you know, over the microphone. So I said, well, I think I'll go ask. So I went up and I talked with the flight attendant. And it was interesting because she had been watching what was going on the whole time. 
So when I asked her if she would read it, she started, well, and the fellow who had the original idea too had put together a little statement that they were reading, you know, to our passengers. So anyway, I handed her that statement to read and she got all, her, her chin started to quiver and she looked at it and she says, oh, this is, oh, she said, I have to ask the captain. And you know, I knew deep down in my heart and my soul that the captain would let us do this because of the way he had treated us during those 28 and a half hours we sat aboard the plane. And pretty soon she came back out and she said, the captain said this is great and he'll be the first to make a contribution. While she had that note and a pledge sheet with her in the cockpit of that plane, the captain made a very sizable pledge to that scholarship fund. And a lot of the other crew members did as well. Well, so I'm standing there, I'm waiting for the flight attendant to begin talking about what, what we passengers wanted to do. Nothing was happening. I'm getting really nervous because we're getting closer and closer to Atlanta. And I knew once we landed in Atlanta, the opportunity was gone because people would, you know, they'd scatter to the four winds and we'd never see them again. So I'm getting really, really nervous. And I'm standing there and I'm looking at the flight attendant and I'm waiting for her to start making this announcement, but she's not doing anything. And I looked at her because she said the captain said it was okay. And I said, well, aren't you going to make the announcement? And she said, no. And I'd like to tell a lot of people, too. I felt like I was in one of Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, black and white Twilight Zone episodes. She just said the captain said it was okay, but then she said she wasn't going to do it. And I'm thinking, why? And I looked at her and I said, well, why not? And she said, we feel because it was the passenger's idea that a passenger should, should make the announcement. And I thought, oh, well, that makes sense. So I go back to the fellow who had the original idea and said, it's okay, but you got to make the announcement. He turned white as a sheet. He says, well, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Well, then I'm looking at the other men who had been in on the conversation, and they weren't about to do it either. I'm getting really nervous because we're getting close to, to Atlanta. I said, well, if you're, you know, if you're uncomfortable doing it, I said, I'll be glad to do it. Now, I have to tell you, I used to be shy. Years and years ago, I was really painfully shy. I couldn't even speak, you know, but somewhere along the line that went out the door. But anyway, the fellows were not willing to do it. So I said, well, okay, I'll be glad to do it. And it was almost like they had rehearsed and they went, would you really? Yes, I'll be glad to. So back up I go to the flight attendant and she looks at me and she said, so you're it, are you? And I said, yes, I am. So she pulled the, the jump seat down. I sat down. She handed me the, the telephone. She said, you know how to operate this? And I said, no. And so she said, let me, let me show you. So she did. So I'm, I'm, I sat down. I've got the microphone in front of me or the telephone, whatever you want to call it. And all of a sudden, I went back to my shy days. <laughs> I couldn't even open my mouth. And the, the flight attendant said, are you all right? She said, um, do you want me to put the food cart in front of you so you don't have to see their faces? She thought I was nervous, you know, looking into the faces of my fellow passengers. Well, that wasn't it. I was sitting there and I was thinking about all of the teachers and professors I had had during my long life and all the papers I had to write and all that other kind of thing. You have to have an introductory sentence 
you have a conclusion. The middle part was the easy part. I didn't have an introductory sentence, so I couldn't open my mouth even to say a word. So I looked up at her and I said, no, I said, I just don't know how to begin this. Well, again, I'm in another Rod Serling episode. I'm looking up at her, she's looking down at me, and it's like in slow motion, she's saying, how about ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention please? And I pumped my fist up in the air and I said, that's it. So I went and I, I said my piece and all I wanted to do was get back to my seat and be anonymous. Well, I discovered, you know, from that moment on, I, went, I couldn't be anonymous anymore. But the pledge sheets went through that plane like crazy. And as we neared the time when we were gonna come in for landing in Atlanta, some of the men went up and they gathered up the pledge sheets and it was something over $15,000 US that had been pledged to this proposed scholarship fund. Now, as more people hear about the story, you know, they make contributions from all over the place. And you won't believe that the endowment has grown from $15,000 to... You know, million and a half, you know, maybe more than that. So, as of this year, as of this year, 2021, 341 kids from a tiny little area of our world, uh, fewer than 4,000 population, 341 kids have received the Lewisport Area Flight 15 Scholarship. And Shirley goes back every year to lead the scholarship ceremony, from an unintentional trip to the area to its most frequent visitor. As of uh, 2019, I had been there 29 times. So since I couldn't go in 2020 and I couldn't go again for graduation this year, this will make my 30th trip back. It's making a real difference in that area. The kids have gone on to do some really great things. One year there was a set of twins in the uh, class of scholarships, a brother and a sister. And afterwards, each time, well, I go back, I make the presentation of the scholarships. I don't know who they are until I get there. And of course, they don't know who they are either until their names are announced. But parents and grandparents and different people always want to come up and talk to you. There was an older man who was standing off to the side, and I knew he wanted to talk with me, but the Newfoundlanders are not pushy people by any sense, any stretch of the imagination. But finally, when it kind of cleared out, he came up to me. And he gave me his, told me what his name was, and he had the same last name as the twins. So I said, oh, are you related to the twins? And he got tears in his eyes, and he said, surely they're my grandchildren. You have no idea what you mean to my family. And here we were in the middle of this room, this man I'd never met before, and we're hugging each other, and we're both crying, and my nose is running, and I didn't have a Kleenex. <laughs> so, you know, in following years, um, you know, whenever I would get kind of, you know, tired and thinking, I can't keep doing all of this, I just really can't keep doing this, I would go back in my mind and remember and remember that experience with the grandfather of those twins, and boy, I would be energized all over again. Well, a few years later, I was back, and Bill and Thelma Hooper and I were out to lunch. 
before we went to all of the graduation activities. Now the kids, for graduation, they do everything all in one day. I mean, they have graduation, they have their, their dinner dance, and then they have a safe grad thing back at the school. So the kids show up not only in their you know, caps and gowns, but in their, in their little ball gowns or their, their tuxedos or whatever they're gonna wear to the dinner dance. So anyway, Bill and Thelma and I had stopped and had lunch before we, we headed out for the graduation events. And there was a group of women who came in and sat across the, the, the room from where we were. One very attractive lady just kind of caught my eye. And she got up and she came over and she spoke to Bill and Thelma. Of course, everybody knows everybody in, in those little towns. And then she stopped and she looked at me and she says, you're Shirley Brooks Jones, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And she says, I just want to thank you. Three of my children have received your scholarship and I looked at her and I, I, I said are you the mother of the twins and she was she was the mother of that brother and sister who had gotten the scholarship a few years before and I said what are they doing well the daughter had graduated from Memorial University she was teaching the younger daughter was in university and the son was working on his PhD in geophysics and I'm thinking, man, it made my head hurt. What is geophysics? I mean, that's amazing, just amazing. I truly believe that I was on Delta Flight 15 on that particular day and was diverted to Gander, Newfoundland and ended up in Lewisport, Newfoundland. I know that I was right exactly where I was supposed to be. I never questioned it. You know, I never had any fear. And people say, well, do, weren't you aware of what was going on? Well, of course I was aware. But you know what? I didn't know what I was supposed to do. It just happened. So anyway, I have babbled on far too long, so. And a big thank you to Shirley for sharing her story. And if you want to support our scholarship fund, Google the Lewisport Area Flight 15 Scholarship Fund, and you'll see it there. Shirley is also featured in the terrific Broadway musical, Come From Away. That's about the Gander story, and she's played by James Earl Jones II. It's likely coming to a city near you, and you can learn more at comefromaway.com. And to learn more about this podcast, please go to 2420podcast.com. New episodes drop every Thursday, and we hope you tune in for the next. And to all of those who have served our great country in one way or another, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you. And please, stay safe. And now, before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me, but I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today, as Nils so powerfully says. I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.